Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Katie Barlow. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. Our guest today is a best-selling author, a documentary filmmaker, a television producer, an NBC News political analyst, a columnist, and co-host of SiriusXM's Alter Family Politics. Jonathan Alter's books on Presidents Franklin Roosevelt and Barack Obama, The Defining Moment, FDR's 100 Days and the Triumph of Hope, and The Promise, President Obama, year one, detailed two chief executives who took office during times of extraordinary crisis. His most recent book is His Very Best, Jimmy Carter, A Life. Jonathan Alter, welcome to Words Matter. Thanks, Katie. How are you? I'm good. I'm excited to talk to you. I am a native Georgian, um, so I want to dig into the Jimmy Carter book. But given where we are in this moment in the history of presidential politics, I want to start with your books on FDR and President Obama first and their transitions into the White House at critical moments in history. There's a belief in Washington and among those who watch the presidency, the so-called lame duck period that we're in, the time between the presidential election and the inauguration, was shortened from the 17 weeks between the November election and March 4th to 11 weeks between Election Day and January 20th because of the disastrous transition between Herbert Hoover and FDR. Is that true? No. (laughs) No, it was actually... um in the period just before that, in the early 1930s, but before 1932-33, that they changed that. And it wasn't even that they anticipated that there was going to be a problem after the 1932 election. They were just making a series of other changes in the law and changing the date of the inauguration to January 20th was one of them. So it was just a coincidence that the 1933 inauguration of Roosevelt was the last one on March 4th. And then starting in 1937, it moved to January 20th. And here we are. So in 1928, the Democratic nominee at the time, Al Smith, became the first presidential candidate to give his concession speech in the form of a radio address. And that's when he lost to Herbert Hoover. So anyone that knows anything about Al Smith might say that he did that at the time because he had a political future and he wouldn't really pass up the opportunity to give a nationally broadcast address speech. But he began that tradition. Four years later, Hoover didn't give a speech, but instead he sent a telegram. And and I'm going to quote what he said in that telegram. 
I congratulate you on the opportunity that has come to you to be of service to the country, and I wish for you a most successful administration. In the common purpose of all of us, I shall dedicate myself to every possible helpful effort. And then a few days later, Hoover sent a more detailed message with a specific policy issues and suggested a transition meeting, to which FDR replied, I appreciate your cordial telegram on the subjects to which you refer as in all matters relating to the welfare of the country, I am glad to cooperate in every appropriate way, subject, of course, to the requirements of my present duties as governor of this state. But the two men didn't like each other, and the transition of power between them was, by all accounts, a disaster for the country. What did Hoover want to accomplish before FDR's inauguration, and what were Roosevelt's goals? This is central to my my first book, The Defining Moment. And I, I think the first thing to understand is that during World War I, when FDR was Assistant Secretary of the Navy under Woodrow Wilson, and Herbert Hoover was one of the most popular men in the United States because of his heroic feats of relief that he organized for Belgium and other war-torn nations in, in Europe. Hoover and Roosevelt were good friends, and Roosevelt actually thought that Hoover would be a good nominee for president for uh, the Democrats in 1920. Both parties wanted Hoover. He was that big of a deal, and he ended up becoming the Republican candidate for president in 1928, and he won. Roosevelt, by this time, is, is a very successful governor of New York, and they start circling each other warily and start lobbying some insults toward each other. Roosevelt didn't think Hoover was doing enough to fight the Depression. And then they had this pretty hard-fought election campaign. And after the election, Hoover tried to rope Roosevelt into renouncing what Hoover considered to be the radical ideas uh, that came to be associated with the New Deal and endorsing Hoover's kind of old-fashioned, old-time, laissez-faire, budget-balancing medicine for the economy, which Roosevelt didn't think was going to work. Meanwhile, the economy was doing something that would be very familiar to us today. It was cratering under the weight of the Depression. And as November and then December, January and February wore on, the economy got worse and worse and worse. And then they had a very chilly meeting where Roosevelt felt Hoover was being rude to him. And Jimmy Roosevelt, Roosevelt's son, wrote later that he wanted to punch President Hoover in the nose for the way he was treating his father. Eleanor Roosevelt was sitting in another room of the White House, and she heard the outgoing and incoming president yelling at each other. And then The night before the inauguration, the banks in many states are cratering, and the governors at midnight on March 3rd, 1933, they're closing the banks in their states. So by the time Roosevelt takes the oath, most of the banks are already closed. And then on his first day, he closes the rest for about 10 days and rescues the banking system. But the irony, Katie, is that For all of the recriminations uh, and the poor relations 
the Roosevelt people and the Hoover people actually worked very closely together to rescue the banks. So on the way down Pennsylvania Avenue to the Capitol, they gave each other the silent treatment and Hoover especially was very cold and Roosevelt tried to break the ice and they passed the new Commerce Department of all things. Hoover had commissioned this building and there were these uh, steel beams and Roosevelt said, nice steel. And those are the only two words that they exchanged. And they were actually the last two words that they ever exchanged because after the inauguration, they never spoke again. So with Hoover and that time period up until, as you talk about, the night before inauguration and the banks on kind of the cusp, what do you think did the most damage then? Was it the length of time or was it the competing interests of the two presidents involved? Well, I think the length of time didn't help. It was just too long of a period to let this lame duck president try to continue policies that the country had rejected. Hoover was very intent on being an activist, hands-on president until like the very last hours he was in office. And that complicated things for Roosevelt. While we're talking about this time period and, and these books that you have written. One piece that I was particularly fascinated by as a lawyer was your account of the famous meeting between FDR and a 92-year-old Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes a few days after FDR took office. So if you could, for me, just talk a little bit about that moment and Justice Holmes' famous quote and how it wasn't really clear which Roosevelt the legendary jurist was referring to. So Justice Holmes is having a birthday party, and the new president, shortly after he's inaugurated, goes over to pay his respects in Georgetown. While he's there, he says to Roosevelt, my advice to you is to form your battalion and fight, which is not the most famous part of this story, but is important, I think, to include and to mentioned that you can't go in there and just kind of compromise on something. You have to actually dig in and fight. So what Holmes was saying to Roosevelt was, fight, fight, fight. Then Roosevelt leaves the birthday party and Holmes says to uh, the other people in attendance, second class intellect, first class temperament. And most people have been assuming that he was talking about Franklin Roosevelt, who had just left, but by some accounts of the people there, he was actually talking about Theodore Roosevelt. I tend to think he was talking about Franklin because Theodore, they both had first-class temperaments, and Theodore, who's the only president other than Jimmy Carter to have written a lot of books, Theodore Roosevelt was an intellectual. So I think he was saying it about Franklin, and it really fits Franklin because Franklin was not a rocket scientist. It's a little bit like Joe Biden, second-class intellect, first-class temperament. And I think that we're going to find that however it goes for him, whether he's successful or not, that temperament that he brings to the job will be an asset for him. 
Right. You actually went exactly where I wanted to go, talking about the 2020 campaign in general. And over the last few weeks in particular, Biden has been compared to FDR and that whatever his shortcomings are, one of his central qualities as a leader is empathy. So could you talk a little bit about that, that shared leadership characteristic between Franklin Roosevelt and Joe Biden? So there's a famous story about Roosevelt that Amy Klobuchar liked to use in her stump speech, but I think it it really applies more to Joe Biden. After Roosevelt died and his funeral procession was moving through the streets of Washington, a man watching it pass collapsed in tears, and the man standing next to him said, did you know the president? And the first man said, no, but he knew me. And I think that this is a quality of empathy that a record number of voters responded to, especially in the context of COVID, but it could be Joe Biden meeting the boy who stuttered or all sorts of other people on rope lines. I wrote an article for the New York Times Magazine about Joe Biden a few years ago and traveled with him for quite a while. And he was talking in the rope lines to anybody who had cancer in their family. And one uh, person came up to him and had a baby they had named Bo. So you can imagine uh, the hugs that that family got. But you didn't have to have done that to get the full empathetic treatment from Joe Biden. And he's famous for, if somebody says, you know, my grandpa's a big fan, he says, call grandpa, you know, and then they call him right there. I've talked to many people that Biden has done this with. So there is that empathy that I think comes out of his suffering. And I think Roosevelt's empathy also came out of his suffering and the compassion that he developed for his fellow polios, as they called them, at Warm Springs, Georgia, the other folks who had contracted polio. And Roosevelt really bonded with them, and he did what he could to lift them up and to help them walk again. And then when he got to the presidency, he wanted to help America walk again. And I think for Joe Biden, he wanted his wife and daughter uh, to not die. And he wanted his son, Bo, to not die. And now he wants other Americans to not die. And, you know, in both debates, he talked about the empty chair in the kitchen for the person who died of COVID. And he he was thinking about the families. And Donald Trump has not once shown any regard for the people who have suffered from this disease. It's just One of the amazing things about the election is that states where COVID is raging, Trump did as well as he did. Because other than saying one death is too many, which is like thoughts and prayers, like a platitude, beyond that, he he just has shown no concern. So I think as we move into a really pretty grim period in the next Uh, three or four months, I think uh, that these qualities will serve Biden well. But that doesn't mean he's going to get his legislative program through because he doesn't have a big Democratic majority the way Franklin Roosevelt did. So fast forward then 75 years later, and Barack Obama 
was elected in the midst of an economic crisis not seen since FDR, as you described it, even more so. The transition between President George W. Bush and Barack Obama was very different than the one between Hoover and FDR. How and why did both presidents vow to learn from the mistakes of their predecessors? George Bush, George W. Bush, kind of took a leaf from his father and his grandfather. He was a believer in good sportsmanship. There'd been a rough campaign. But remember, McCain was the candidate. It wasn't Bush. It wasn't like Bush lost to Kerry. We don't know what that transition would have been like in 2004 if John Kerry had been elected. But I do think the Bush family had a belief in doing the right thing. But you have to remember that every transition after the Roosevelt-Hoover transition was very smooth until Trump. I mean, this is a huge departure. This is an enormously destructive act to our democracy. And we can't sugarcoat it. Now, he still has time to do the right thing. So maybe this will just be a blip of a a couple of weeks. And we have had that in the election of 1916, which was extraordinarily close between Woodrow Wilson and Charles Evans Hughes. The votes from California took such a long time to be counted. Wilson ended up winning California, but it was very late. And it was about two weeks after the election before Charles Evans Hughes conceded to Wilson. So now let's talk about your most recent book, and let's talk about Jimmy Carter. Before we get into the substance of the fantastic and in-depth book that you've put together, it's been almost 40 years since Jimmy Carter left Washington, and yet yours is really the first comprehensive biography. Why did you choose Carter, and why did you decide to undertake the daunting task of producing the first definitive biography of our 39th president? Well, I think because there was this big hole in the line of scrimmage, that was one of the reasons I decided to do it, is I'd seen Jimmy Carter. He came to this book group I'm, I'm in, and we were reading a book about Camp David that Lawrence Wright wrote. And there had been books I'd read on Carter's miraculous 1976 campaign, Carter's post-presidency. Douglas Brinkley wrote a book about that. And a lot of people had bitten off little parts of his life. Jimmy Carter himself has written a lot of books, and he wrote a terrific book about his boyhood. But then when I saw him, I realized, you know, there's got to be more to this guy than inept president, great ex-president, because the performance at Camp David was such a virtuoso performance, and it established the most durable and important major peace treaty since World War II. And I thought, wow, if he did pull that off, there's got to be something else here, more here. I knew that my editor at Simon & Schuster, the late Alice Mayhew, who died early this year, Bob Woodward's editor, a lot of other Doris Kearns Goodwin, a lot of other uh, nonfiction authors, when I learned from her that she was really interested in my doing this and that she would, as Jimmy Carter's editor, she would smooth the way so I would get extraordinary access. And then when I found out there actually isn't a, a biography by an independent historian, you know, his aides have written books, but then I got really excited about it. 
more than five years ago. And I jumped into this thing. And you're right, it's very different than my previous three books. It's just daunting when you see the literally millions of documents and you have to figure out, okay, what is the right mix of interviews, oral histories, diaries, documents, trying to get newly declassified documents, and then putting it all together in a compelling narrative. But the nice thing we were talking about Trump, you know, I think you've gathered by now what my feelings are about Trump, but it was a a nice sort of vacation escape from Trump to write the book. And what I found with the reaction that people have is that a lot of them find it's a nice escape from Trump and from our dark time to read about an honest, accountable, smart president for all of his political failures. Let's keep up with the theme of presidential transitions and talk about Carter. Carter began planning his six months before the election. Uh, As you know, the earliest such effort on record. Talk a little bit about that and why the incoming president decided not to have a White House chief of staff. So I think the first one was a good decision. The second one, not so good. (laughs) Carter was a planner. Like when he was asked sometimes in Georgia, when he was running for governor for his occupation, he was a businessman and he would mention that and he he had a peanut warehouse. He was cleaner than a hound's tooth, first president to disclose his taxes. And he had headed these planning commissions, started Southwest Georgia Planning Commission. And before he was governor, I devote very little space to that because the rest of his life is so novelistic from racing through a melted down experimental nuclear reactor in the early 1950s to uh, going door to door as a missionary and trying to convert the madam of a brothel that, you know, the part about his founding the Southwest Georgia Regional Planning Commission was not very interesting, but it's relevant to your question because he was a planner by nature and an engineer. And I have a chapter called his inner engineer. So it's totally in character that he would be planning for the transition very early, much earlier than any other president had done, because that's that's in his nature. But then he had this idea that when Charlie Kerbo, who ended up running his blind trust, didn't want to be White House chief of staff, didn't want to come to Washington, and he knew that Hamilton Jordan wasn't really cut out for it, and Jack Watson, he had been kind of uh, pushed aside by Jordan in the scuffling uh, during the transition, So there wasn't anybody to be chief of staff, and Carter decided, I'll do this kind of spokes on a wheel structure for the White House staff, where I'm at the center, and several aides are like spokes on a wheel. So during the transition, when Jordan and a couple of other White House aides were meeting with Dick Cheney, who was the very young, outgoing White House chief of staff under Gerald Ford, and they had a very harmonious transition, Cheney went into his closet and he pulled out a bent bicycle wheel with spokes and gave it to the Carter folks as a gift and said, it didn't work for us and it's not going to work for you. And Cheney was right. Jimmy Carter was the president of 
several firsts, or at least firsts in a while. When he was elected in 1976, he was the first president elected from the Deep South since Zachary Taylor in 1848. He was the first governor elected president since FDR in 1932. And he was the first president without any Washington experience since Woodrow Wilson in 1912. He was also the first evangelical Christian elected president. Talk about those firsts and how they proved to be challenges for his incoming administration. Well, there was a lot of Southern pride involved in his election. He carried states like Mississippi that it's just really hard to imagine a Democrat carrying now, in which four years later he didn't carry. But that was a not really a base because he was so out of step with the emerging conservatism in the South that he didn't really have a base despite being the first Southerner. But there was this huge shift. It was no longer cool in the Democratic Party to run even the kind of dog whistle campaign that Carter himself ran in 1976. So that's the Southern part of it. In terms of his being the first president without Washington experience, it hampered him, but I think maybe not as much as some people might suggest. Because again, the sort of the premise of the criticism is that if he'd been in the Senate for many years, that he would have gotten more legislation through. And it turned out when I looked at it, yes, he failed to manage his relationship with Ted Kennedy. And maybe if he had served with him for many years in the Senate and had that Washington experience, that we would have had health care. And that would have been a big deal. They were like oil and water, Kennedy and Carter. Kennedy ran against him in 1980. So maybe if he'd had Washington experience, he would have done better with that. He might not have been such an outsider if he'd been so disdainful of the Washington establishment if he'd had Washington experience. But Carter was an outsider by nature. And this goes back to when he was an outsider in Plains, population 400. And he's from a town that has 25 people. And he describes when he goes to school as a six-year-old and feels like an outsider. He's kind of teased by the kids in town. So for his whole life, he was always an outsider. And I think even if he had been in Washington for you know 10 years before that, he still would have had the instincts of an outsider. So we've covered first Southerner, first one without Washington experience, first governor since Roosevelt. I think that was very helpful to him because he understood more about the mechanics of government. And it made him interested in things like reforming the civil service, which he did for the first time in a hundred years. And right. he, he did a quite a number of other things that related to the gearing of government that he was very interested in, in ways that Washington presidents who don't know about the effect of policy on the states generally are not. So I think his experience as a governor was a plus. What he did do that was he brought to bear his experience as a governor into the executive branch in Washington, but something that he did do that kind of molded and changed the executive branch and it happened during the transition was he made the decision to elevate the vice presidency. What did he do differently from his predecessors and why did he elevate Walter Mondale? So this goes on the list of unheralded Carter achievements. He revolutionized the office of vice president 
He and Rosalind revolutionized the role of first lady. And then when he left office, he revolutionized the post-presidency. Pretty big accomplishments when you think about it. So Carter did not have the crippling insecurities that Johnson, Nixon, Trump, and other presidents have had. So he was able psychologically to empower his vice president. And Mondale wouldn't have taken the job if Carter hadn't promised him that because uh, he had seen what Johnson had done to Humphrey and Mondale was Humphrey's protege and Johnson humiliated Hubert Humphrey. So he didn't want that to happen. Carter promised him it would be different. And then Carter kept his promise to him. And I interviewed Walter Mondale at length and he and Carter remained quite close. Before Mondale, the vice president didn't even have an office in the West Wing. And as Mondale said, I might as well have been in Baltimore if I'm out in the old executive office building, they now call the Eisenhower building. So a lot changed for Mondale. He was also put in the chain of command. Before Carter put him in, in the chain of command, the military had no respect for the vice president because they didn't need to deal with him. And as Mondale told me, that changed in an instant when Carter did that. And I think Carter did it because he respected Mondale. He understood that Mondale had relationships on the Hill, for instance, that he did not have relationships among liberal Democrats that he did not have and could be of great use to him. And he was. I know we're giving the presidency, the Carter presidency short shrift, but we'll put a link to the book in our show notes so everyone can read more about the Carter presidency because there's much, much more than we can cover even in this hour. But sticking with our theme, let's fast forward to election night, 1980. Ronald Reagan won 489 electoral votes, 44 states, and picked up 12 seats in the U.S. Senate. That night, Jimmy Carter did something unusual. He conceded at around 9.30 p.m. Eastern time when the polls were still open on the West Coast. Why did he do that and how unusual was it? It was unusual and it was not a good thing. It was harmful to California, Washington, and Oregon Democrats. And Tom Foley, who later became Speaker of the House, said it was typical Carter. By that, he meant Carter didn't really care very much about Democratic members of Congress. His idea of hell was to have to entertain them. So he sold the yacht, the Sequoia, you know, so he wouldn't have to spend time with him, which was a dumb thing to do. And he just kind of continued that on election night. He wanted to get it over with. He had known since about 1 a.m. West Coast time that morning that he had lost because uh, he was at a, his last rally in Seattle and his advisors, including his pollster, Pacadell, called him and told him, you're going to lose tomorrow. And so all of election day, he knew exactly what was going to happen to him and had meetings, talked to Rosalind about it. And then he uh, just wanted to get it over with. So it wasn't because he was so gracious necessarily. He just wanted to get the inevitable over with. And he reached Reagan when he was coming out of the shower. Nancy answered the phone and Reagan toweled off and took the concession call. There was in 
reading your books and in doing our research for the show, there was a fact that came up that kind of blew my mind a little bit. This was all an amazingly tumultuous time in American history and in the American presidency. But between August of 1974 and January 1981, we had four presidents in just over six years. And to put that in context, in the 24 years between 1993 and 2017, we had three presidents, Clinton, Bush 43, and Obama. So talk about the transitional nature of the Carter administration. Clearly, the country was moving to the right, and he was kind of a speed bump in the traffic flows of history. The South was moving from Democratic to Republican, the Sun Belt was becoming Republican. The intellectually conservatism was in the ascendancy. Liberalism seemed kind of tired, frozen in amber from the New Deal. And Carter interrupted that to a certain extent. And in that sense was a a band-aid on a broken Democratic Party. But what I think that that misses is that Carter was, I describe him as a political failure, but a substantive and far-sighted success. So because of that planning quality in his background, he's constantly doing things that aren't doing him any political good, in some cases doing him considerable political harm, but are in the long-term interests of the United States and, and arguably the world. I start the book talking about him putting solar panels on the roof of the White House, which was just symbolic of all of the things he did to move us to a clean energy future from fuel economy standards to the first regulations that incentivized utilities to use green energy. And the list goes on and on and on of of what he did to make him the greatest environmental president since Theodore Roosevelt. And arguably because Roosevelt was dealing with conservation and not industrial uh, pollution, arguably Jimmy Carter was the greatest environmental president in American history, because he was doing both. And we haven't really talked about his human rights policy, which was hypocritical in many respects, but was the first global standard for how governments treat their people. And a number of historians believe that he will be remembered for a very long time for his human rights policy, which also, as a lot of conservatives now agree, helped hasten the end of the Cold War because it hollowed out the Soviet empire. He and Deng Xiaoping created the global economy, most important bilateral relationship in the world between the United States and China. Nixon established relations with China, opened the door, Carter walked through. And at the time Carter became president, we had this two-China policy, which was unworkable. China had a GDP of that of a sub-Saharan African nation, and they've now had the greatest growth in all of human history and then some. And this was a direct consequence of this bilateral relationship, which is now, for all of its troubles, is at the heart, at the core of our global economy. The number of things that he got accomplished, and we haven't even talked about just almost the novelistic quality of his life. What amazed me as I did the research is that this is an American epic. This guy's story. There's just so much here that I learned about this man and not only his underrated presidency and slightly overrated 
post-presidency, but about an enormously complex individual. I agree with Stephen Colbert that Donald Trump is fundamentally boring because there's nothing new to find out about him. We know everything there is to know about him. We know who he is. And after five years and reviewing thousands of documents and interviewing Jimmy Carter 12 times and building a house with him, a Habitat for Humanity house in Memphis, and interviewing more than 260 people who know him, including everybody in his family, many of whom had never been interviewed before, I still don't have a definitive take on him. He is still an enigma. And that complexity, that layered quality to him fascinated me. And and I hope that I can convey some of that to readers. I think it makes sense to end with a quote that I wanted to ask you about then. And it actually flows directly from the point that you were just making And it goes back to the final days of his administration shortly before Reagan took office. President Carter had a small dinner that included Vice President Walter Mondale, during which Mondale gave a toast. And he said, we told the truth. We obeyed the law. We kept the peace. In the 40 years since... (laughs) Those seem like unique achievements in a presidential history. Was Jimmy Carter the first and perhaps the last president who could credibly make those claims? Well, I don't know if he's the last. I hope Joe Biden is able to achieve all three of those. I think that's the least that we should expect from an American president. And the fact that it's so hard to to find is it's unfortunate. Carter, just a few years ago, figured out that there's only been 12 years in the history of the United States where we didn't have some combat role somewhere in the world. And four of them were his. The only other president who went through his entire time in office, you know, the the other eight years were Thomas Jefferson. And so you don't really think of Jimmy Carter in the same breath as Thomas Jefferson. Even people like Stuart Eisenstadt, his close aide, say nobody's suggesting Jimmy Carter for Mount Rushmore. But it is interesting that he's the first president since Jefferson who kept the peace the whole time and also the first Renaissance man since Jefferson who is so able at so many different skills. I mean, I get tired just thinking about all of the different skills that he has that are most of them outside politics. And so people have this misimpression of him. I think they also, they think of him as a kind of a weak, genial and very uh, Zen-like guy When I asked his son, Jeff, how would you describe your father? He said, intense. And that corresponds to pretty much what I've heard all around. Very tough, very intense, very much like a hard-charging captain of a nuclear submarine. And then there's also just the uh, extraordinary story of his eccentric and colorful family. He had one sister who was a evangelist, another sister rode with the Hell's Angels. 
His mother went into the Peace Corps when she was 68 years old. His father was a white supremacist. It's a complex and, to my mind anyway, compelling story. It is a compelling story, and we're grateful that you put pen to paper on it. And for our listeners, the name of the book, again, is His Very Best, Jimmy Carter, A Life. And it's by Jonathan Alter. And when he's not on MSNBC doing political commentary or producing television and documentaries, you can catch Jonathan on Sirius XM as co-host of the Alter Family Politics. Thank you so much for joining us and for writing this important book. Thank you for a fantastic interview. We really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. Please rate and review Words Matter at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. 